0: Good morning, church. Um, I am very pleased to be uh, back with you guys here in Wills Point this morning. Um, I think since uh, we began regathering, um, I have been either in Edgewood um, each week. I think last week I was on vacation. So it is, it is nice to be uh, back here to, uh, to, te- to see some of you. And um, uh, that's not to say I don't want to see others of you um, I just came out wrong, but um, it is nice, and I'm glad to be back here on the Will's Point campus, and um, and I'm glad to be able to share with you this morning. Um, If you're with us for the first time or watching online for the first time, we have been walking through um, the book of Hosea, and uh, as we've seen, the overarching theme within this book is is Israel depicted as an unfaithful wife to their faithful. Husband, God, or Yahweh. Um, and we've seen just their, their, their idolatry. They're, they're giving themselves over to um, the gods of the nations that surround them. They're making covenants with kings that surround them instead of looking to God um, as they should. And throughout this book, we've seen several series of accusations and then judgment. In chapter 10, marks the end of one of those rounds of accusation and pronouncements of judgment. But what we'll see here in chapter 10 is that the judgment is near. It is, it is coming that Israel itself, the northern kingdom, is facing its end. Um, and they're ultimately going to bear the guilt or bear, bear their guilt without an idol, without a king, and they will be left to themselves Um, leaderless powerless to stay the judgment that's coming so verse 15 this morning to kind of start at the end and jump backwards verse 15 says at dawn the king of israel will be utterly cut off that act at dawn when that happens that's going to be the spark to everything that has been said thus far all the judgment all the accusations all the All that Hosea has been telling the people is going to come. Whenever that happens and the king is cut off, that is the spark which catalyzes everything that is to follow. And he says, it is at dawn. The time is imminent. It is at hand. So that's the mindset I want to have as we walk into this this morning. But Hosea begins this chapter, this section in verse 1, and he's reminding them, the people, of how it is that they actually got here. Um, And he says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. And the word for luxuriant there means to spread out, but it also means means degenerate. They're a degenerate vine that spreads out and it yields its fruit. But then he says, the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his altars. Now, in the law, in Deuteronomy 8, Uh, verses 11 through 14, it's prophetic in a sense. It says this, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and the statues which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, Then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, what I would like for you to do, if you don't mind marking in your Bible, is in the margin of your Bible, write this question down. What has increased in your life as your prosperity has increased? What things do you have that over the course of your life, as you've graduated college or got out of high school, you got a job, you began to gain income, and your prosperity increased? What things have you attained or you've brought in that have increased with the increase of your prosperity? And consider those things. I want you to consider. What those things are, what things that you have that are good things that you have made ultimate things in your life, what things could you not bear to lose? And oftentimes when we think through that, we don't look at our stuff as things that we could not bear to lose until they're gone. But oftentimes, as our prosperity increases, right, we get a bigger house. As our house increases in size, our living rooms increase in size, our TVs increase in size, our vehicles become more luxuriant. But consider that vehicle for a moment. Because there's nothing wrong with having those things. There's nothing wrong with prosperity. But oftentimes, what we do, we will take the prosperity, we will forget who gave it to us, where it came from. We will believe we created it for ourselves. But we will take that prosperity, we'll take that blessing and we'll create it into a curse for ourselves. But think about it for a minute. Who's got an old truck? Or an old car? Do you have any anxiety about that vehicle? No. It gets you from here to there. After 30 years, it's oddly reliable. But you don't have much anxiety about that vehicle. I drove... um, the same vehicle for like near 20 years out of high school. Never had a car payment. I had a 97 Green Expedition, and many people know what I'm talking about. I sold it. It got to a point where it was just broken, and I, and I got rid of it. And I mean, it was such a blessing for all those years. And I think back now, like, man, I know where it's at. I know who I sold it to. I drive by, I drive by the pastor that I put it out to, and I still see it. But it had meaning to me in such a way, but, but, but I, didn't, I, wasn't anxious, I didn't have anxiety over that vehicle. But now, I bought a new vehicle. You buy something new, you get new things, all of a sudden, anxiety goes up. Right, where do you park in your new vehicle? Right, you didn't squeeze in that first parking, lot, parking spot because somebody took the line. No, you park at the back. And that's, for the first two months of me owning this vehicle, I park at the very back of the parking lot, and I make the long trek all the way to the door because I don't want a door ding. I fear a door ding. I fear my nieces or my nephews spilling something in my truck, a stain on there. My wife spilling her Dr. Pepper and it gets sticky. Did you wipe that up? All that anxiety comes because it is new to me. And that doesn't mean it's a bad thing to have. But when those things become ultimate things and we cannot bear to lose them or the damage to them becomes something that shakes us up completely, We've got things out of place. And the Lord warned them. He told them, when your things multiply, they yielded their fruit. The more it increased, the more altars they built, the more they improved, they improved their altars. And if we're not careful in our own hearts with our own things, we will do the very same things. And he says, your heart will become proud. You will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. But the second question I have for you is when you consider our nation, what comes to mind? As we've walked through Hosea, you can take what's going on in our nation right now, and probably in the world even, and you can overlay that with Hosea and see similarity after similarity after similarity as to where we are as a culture and resist the urge to harden your heart toward this reality. And consider when you look at our nation as our prosperity has increased, what has increased along with it? Pride, ego, greed, discontent. We're not satisfied with what we have, so we want more. When we cannot get more, we become angry. When we lose things, we become broken. And we have lost a lot of things very recently. And we become broken. But our desire to protect that which we believe created, we created, leads us to a path of brokenness and destruction. We make blessings become curses if we're not careful and we get out of order where we got those things. And that's the same for Israel. That's the message today. But the hardest man to reach is the self-made man because he believes he created everything that he has. And if you forget the Lord and where it came, to, came from, your heart becomes tainted and hardened toward the Lord. And that leads to verse 2. Their heart is false. They must bear their guilt now. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. The word there for false means flattering. Literally, it means smooth. Right? They become a smooth talker. Right? They give lip service to the Lord. They talk their way around what is actually taking place in their life. Their heart has become false. They must bear their guilt. Verse 3, for now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord and a king. What could he do for us? And in a way, it, they're admitting a very grave fault, but they're also admitting that they don't need a king. And In reality, that is correct. They don't need a king, but their problem is they're not looking to God as their king. If you look back at 1 Samuel 8:4, you see them go to the Lord, he's their king, he's he's the one that's that brought them out of Egypt, he's blessing them, he's protecting them, and they go to the Lord and said, "We want a king." But the reason they say we now want a king is the reason is we want to be like all the other nations. And God is like, "You don't need a king." He's like, "That's foolish. You have me as your king." But instead, they want to be like all the other nations. He's the one that brought them out of Egypt, brought them out of slavery. He promised them land. He's given them the promised land, blessing, prospers, fruitfulness, descendants. All nations in the world will be blessed through these people. But instead of taking that and having them, God as their king, they go to him and say, we want to be like everybody else. How absurd is that? But how often do I have to ask myself, do I want this or do I want to do this? Do I want that new truck? Because I want to be like everybody else. Oftentimes, yes, that's the reality. And it's absurd if you really think about it. Is I would trade in the goodness of the Lord for something that someone else has. But the Lord gives it to them. But he doesn't give it to them without instruction. In 1 Samuel 12, 14, he says, uh, If you will the uh, Lord, fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord... And both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. It will be well. Well, as we look in Hosea hundreds of years later, it's not really well, is it? It's not good for them at all. They do not fear the Lord, nor did their king. So what could he do for them? Absolutely nothing except lead them to the door of their judgment. Because they're following a man that's heart is not positioned before the Lord, just as they are. Admittedly, they do not fear the Lord themselves. And it's the fear of the Lord that brings about the knowledge of God in chapter 4 that is so key, is the loss of the knowledge of God is what starts leading these people to the slow descent to where they are now. Therefore, 1 Samuel 12, 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Again, verse 15, At dawn, the king of Israel will be utterly cut off. Psalm 118.8 says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. They wanted a king. He set them up a king. They trusted in a man, not the Lord. And a man is broken, is fallible, is sinful, and will lead other men to their destruction if he himself is not following the Lord. Any person that stands here on the stage and teaches the people of God, if I'm not led by the Lord, I'm going to lead you to destruction, and I will answer most certainly for it. If I'm not following the Lord and abiding with him, in order to lead, but when you place your trust in a man, you will be disappointed. That's true for kings, pastors, spouses, friends, family, relatives, co workers. This is why community, when we get in community with people, that's why it's difficult. That's why it gets messy because we're all broken, sinful people. But when we start putting too much emphasis on the horizontal relationships around us and neglect that vertical relationship that we have with the Lord, things will begin to fall apart in our lives. Verse 4, they utter mere words. With empty oaths, they make covenants, so judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. Now, there are two kinds of covenants here for them. There's their covenant with God, and then there's their covenants with other people, the surrounding nations. It's it's personal covenants, political covenants, religious covenants. All these covenants that they're making with other people, but they're breaking the one covenant that they have with the Lord. So if they're not going to commit to the Lord and keep their covenant with Him, why in the world would they keep any commitment to anyone else? They wouldn't. It's just mere words. It's empty oaths that they give to people and they give to the Lord. So judgment then springs up. Verse 5, the inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of beth Its people mourn for it. And so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory. At one point in time, these priests and these people, they would dance before these golden calves at Bethel and rejoice over its glory. Now they mourn for it, for it has departed from them. And remember my question earlier, what things in your life, if you were to lose them, you couldn't bear it? The calves at Bethel, they held such a place in their heart that when they were gone, they mourned. Verse 6, the thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame. Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. So not only is the focus of their idolatry and worship being taken away from them, it's going as a tribute to the king that they trusted in for political protection instead of the Lord. And this actually is the actual king that will be the one that destroys them. They're paying tribute to this king for protection, and this is the king that's going to end up destroying them. How ironic is that? That's the foolishness of their hearts, but yet they mourn that it's going. Verse 7, Samaria's king shall be like a twig on the face of the waters. Again, verse 15, at dawn the king of Israel shall be cut off. Verse 8, the high places of Avon... The sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us. And to the hills, fall on us. They will lose their king. They will lose their capital city, which is the center of their idolatrous worship. They will lose their high places, which is the outlying places of worship. Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 14. You can read on the Lord's instruction for those places as they entered the land. But then ultimately they will lose their gods. King. Places of worship lose their gods. This loss of corrupt worship, religion, and politics is going to be so much for them. It's going to instill so much misery in their lives that they've lost these things. They're going to cry out to the hills. They're not going to cry out to their gods that they've been bowing down to for help. They're going to cry out to the hills that held the altars that they can no longer get to to fall on them. It's better to them to die than to have lost what they're losing. But see, church, this is where I come to the realization that the Lord will be praised one way or another. He has told them time and time again throughout the book of Hosea that he is going to destroy these altars and these idols, and now he's to the point where they are ripped from them. He said, if you're not going to worship me, I'm going to remove from you anything that you will worship other than me. Your king, your idols gods, all of it is going to be gone God will be praised in the end and he takes it all from them and I praise the Lord and I thank him for times in my life where he has utterly shook me up to root out things in my heart that I have placed before him because if he doesn't do that I will follow after those things and I will be far from him I will not lead well I will send my own self to destruction and others but anything that sets me against him, he shakes me up, and he will rid it out because the Lord will be praised. Verse nine from the days of Gibeah, or Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. I sh- uh, shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah. When I please, I will discipline them. He says, and nations shall be gathered against them, and they, when they are bound up for their double iniquity, and that could be their broken covenant toward God and their political covenants to other people but now the remaining verses of chapter 10 they depict God's purpose for Israel and his purpose for Israel was to serve him and serve him with ease not with hardship but to obey what he says to be blessed and to serve him nonetheless but these verses show his discipline As well as his purpose, his expectation, their failure to meet those expectations and the judgment for their failure. So verse 11, Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh and I spared her fair neck. He's reminding them of not what they've done to get where they're at, but he's reminding them here of who they once were. This is a positive statement. He says they were a trained calf that loved to thresh. And a trained calf, it's, it contrasts the stubborn heifer from 4.15. That stubborn heifer that wants to do what it wants, doesn't listen to its master and goes its own way. But he says at one point they were trained. in a trained calf that loved to thresh. To thresh means that they would use these trained calves to, on the threshing floor to tread out or trample over the wheat and separate it from the shaft. They would either do it under their foot or they would uh, draw a sledge behind them but the idea is that trained they knew their job they knew what their purpose was and they were able to eat of the grain as they worked that was Israel they endured or they had his blessing they could move about they got his blessing but they also did work they had a purpose in it and they loved to thresh but here the lord's discipline in the second part of 11 but i will put ephraim To the yoke, Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. He said, now they're more akin to an untrained calf or an untrained heifer. They're not doing what their purpose is, so I'm going to have to put my yoke upon them and direct them now to where they are to go. The idea is discipline. He reminds them that they were never free to do as they pleased. They always had a purpose, but when we go outside of that purpose, he places his yoke upon them to direct them back to where he would have them to be. And Ephraim to the yoke, that's the northern kingdom. Judah must plow, that's the southern kingdom. Jacob must harrow for himself, that's the collective Israel. God is saying that the entire nation of Israel must plow. My yoke is going to be placed upon them to discipline them, and plowing and harrowing are difficult work. Without a $400,000 tractor in that day and age in Palestine, you had shallow, hard, rocky soil. It was very difficult work to plow and harrow the soil. So discipline would not come easy for them. But the same is true for us today. Hebrews twelve eleven says, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And this leads us to verse 12. Now the Lord's expectation for his people. He says, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground. It is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. But now I prefer a different translation. I prefer the NASB here and I have it for you on the screen. It says, sow with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness. Then break up your fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness upon you. But it's so with a view to righteousness. We can't sow righteousness for we're unrighteous. Romans 3.10, Paul says that none is righteous. No, not one. There is not one person on this planet that is righteous. We can't sow that in, but we sow with a view to righteous, righteousness. And then we seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness upon us. But righteousness and kindness, they're not the direct objects of their verbs, sow and reap. But they're, man, they're the manner in which true sowing and true reaping should take place. Now contrastingly, if you look at verse 13, you have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You, eat, you have eaten the fruit of lies. Iniquity and, in, and injustice are the direct object of their respective verbs. They have plowed Iniquity; They have reaped injustice. But the opposite is that we should sow with a view. But instead these people have, have sown the wrong things, have reaped the wrong things. Chapter 8, they have sowed the wind, they will reap the whirlwind. And then the Lord's judgment comes. Because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors, therefore the tumult of war shall rise among your people. Among your people, not somewhere else. It's not a war in a distant land. It's a war in their own home. And all your fortresses, fortresses shall be destroyed as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbol. On the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Just highlighting the utter destruction that is about to come. The level of violence that is about to happen in their judgment that is coming. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil at dawn. The king of Israel shall be utterly Cut off. That is the reality. That is the imminence. That is what's coming because of what they've done. And it did not happen overnight, church. It has a been a slow descent to where they are. And I want to back up to verse 12 and spend the rest of our time really looking at this verse. From chapter 8, verse 1, everything that we've read leads up to this point right here in this verse. But I want to read from you for you this quote from A.W. Tozer that I believe to be wonderful to this point. He says, here are two kinds of ground, the fallow ground and the ground that has been broken up by the plow. <clears throat> the, fallow is, the fallow field is smug, contented, protected from the shock of the plow and the agitation of the harrow. Such a field as it lies year after year becomes a familiar landmark to the crow and the blue jay. Had it intelligence, it might take a lot of satisfaction in its reputation. It has stability. Nature has adopted it. It can be counted upon to remain always the same while the fields around it change from brown to green and back to brown again. Safe and undisturbed, it sprawls lazily in the sunshine. The picture of sleepy contentment but it is paying a terrible price for its tranquility. Never does it see the miracle of growth. Never does it feel the motions of mounting life, nor see the wonders of bursting seed, nor the beauty of ripening grain. Fruit it can never know because it is afraid of the plow and the harrow. He says, In direct opposite to this, the cultivated field has yielded itself to the adventure of living. The protecting fence has opened to admit the plow, and the plow has come as plows always come, practical, cruel, businesslike, and in a hurry. Peace has been shattered by the shouting farmer and the rattle of machinery. The field has felt the travail of change. It has been upset, turned over, bruised, and broken, and, but its rewards come hard upon its labors. The seed shoots up into the daylight, its miracle of life, curious, exploring the new world above it. All over the field, the hand of God is at work in the age-old and ever-renewed service of creation. In this next sentence, I absolutely love. He says, New things are born to grow, mature, and consummate the grand prophecy latent in the seed when it entered the ground. Nature's wonders follow the plow. See, the picture in verse 12 The analogy that is there, that is is in view, is one of confessing and repenting. As he speaks to the nation of Israel, he is calling them to confession and to repentance. But it's a a cycle that should continue. It's not a one-time thing that you do and then you stop. He's telling them, so with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with steadfast love, Break up your fallow ground and it's time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness upon you. You continually do this over and over in your life. His law, the sacrificial system, everything that he has set in place for the people speaks to this progression of their life. It is confession and it is repentance. It is breaking up that fallow ground. It is necessary, but not only necessary, God commands it. He expects it. James five sixteen, But then Tozer goes on to say that there are two kinds of lives as well. The fallow and the plowed. For examples of the fallow life, we need not go far. They are all too plentiful among us. The man of fallow life is contented with himself and the fruit he once bore. He does not want to be disturbed. He is steady, faithful, something of a landmark in the little church. But he is fruitless. The plowed life is the life that has, in the act of repentance, thrown down the protecting fences and sent the plough of confession into the soul. The urge of the spirit, the pressure of circumstances, and the distress of fruitless living have combined thoroughly to humble the heart. Such a life has put away defense and has forsaken the safety of death for the peril of life. Discontent, yearning, contrition, courageous obedience to the will of God. These have bruised and broken the soil till it's ready again for the seed. And as always, fruit follow the plow. Life and growth begin as God rains down righteousness. Such a one can testify, and the hand of the Lord was upon me there. But church, the question is, is when was the last time you could say that the hand of the Lord was upon me there? And sadly, I mean, there's some that you've, you've been a Christian for probably 30 or 40 years, and if I were to ask that question, when was the last time something significant happened in your life where you could say that the hand of the Lord was upon me there? When I think of that question for myself, I mean, it, it troubles me to the time that it takes me to think of an instance where I could say the Lord was with me. He did this here. But sadly, In my heart, the thing that stirs me and causes me to mourn is the realization that the most times I can think of the Lord's hand being upon me there were times when I was living in outright rebellion against the holy God. That is a reality, is those are the things that I remember most looking back on my rebellion, but yet the Lord was there. With the nation of Israel, he has most certainly been there over and over and over and over and over to a point where he is done. You have worshipped everything but me. You've set yourself against me in every facet of your life. And he says, no more. Praise the Lord that he never got to a point in my life where he said no more. But there will come a day where he will say no more, church. But now there are two types of people in here today and watching online as well. The entirety of the world, the entirety of human population falls into two categories. One is the believer who is in Christ and the other is the non-believer who is not in Christ. But to both, I want you to note something in this text today that I believe to be vastly important. But note the verb tense surrounding, and the verb surrounding these verses verse 11 says Ephraim was that loved he says I spared verse 13 you have plowed you have reaped you have eaten you have trusted these are past tense verbs verse verse 7 Samaria's king shall perish that's future tense verse 13 because you have trusted past tense verse 14 war shall rise fortresses shall be destroyed future tense Verse 10, when I please, I will discipline them. Future tense. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Future tense. But now look at verse 12. Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time present to seek the Lord until he comes future to rain righteousness upon you. But the idea surrounding this is, is for the sinner that comes in here today that is watching this online, does not know the Lord. Yesterday, you plowed iniquity, you reaped injustice. Because of that, in your future, there will be judgment. But the glory of the Lord is that today, you can sow yourself with a view to righteousness. You can start seeking the Lord so that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. That should be a wonderful truth that brings joy to our lives that I today can be different than I was yesterday to stave off any judgment that is surely coming tomorrow. Because at dawn, this is happening. That's the urgency. So he's he's appealing to them. So today, because it's coming tomorrow, that he may rain righteousness upon you. And the word for rain there can also mean to teach We do not sow righteousness again because we have none to sow. No one is righteous, no, not one. Therefore, we need righteousness to be demonstrated for us. We seek the Lord until he comes to teach us righteousness. So who is it to come with the title rabbi or teacher? Romans 3, 23 through 26 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received. by. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance has passed over former past tense sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that we might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It is Jesus who knew no sin that became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. And it is Jesus who tells us in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, he says, Come to me, all you who, are labored, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he says, Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For Israel, they descended to a place of utter destruction to where the Lord says, I have to put my yoke upon you. Jesus pleads with the people, pleads with us to take his yoke upon ourselves. He invites us to take his yoke. He demands and puts his yoke on Israel. That's the difference. And he says, learn from me. So I I appeal to you, find rest for your souls. But to the believers in this room, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. That is the call to the believer. Break up your fallow ground, confess and repent until he comes to rain righteousness upon you. But what what does the unbeliever see in us, church? If they come in here and they sit down next to you, do they see a barren, fallow, fruitless field with no life? Why would they want what we have if we don't show them fruitfulness and life and the wonder of God and the righteousness that he brings in? Where is the joy of the Lord in our lives? If we are not sowing humility and obedience to the Lord, we will reap nothing fruitful. But 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That is our assurance. It's forgiveness of our past, of our future. It's forgiveness of our present. It is ongoing. But we must confess, we must repent and allow God to rain his righteousness down upon us. Last week, Brandon ended his teaching with some practical advice on on what bearing fruit looks like. Three fantastic, wonderful points on what we can do to bear fruit in our lives. One was follow closely after the Lord. Two was invest in the next generation. And three is to glorify God in all things. But if we are not breaking up our fallow ground, confessing and repenting of the sin in our lives, we will not be able to do any one of those three things. The Lord is not close to unrighteousness. As we learn from Hosea, he judges it. He judges it harshly. If you are not breaking up your fallow ground, if you're not being fruitful within your life, you will have nothing of merit to invest in the next generation. And you will most certainly be incapable of glorifying God if we are not first breaking up our fallow ground. If we are harboring sin within our lives and we are not confessing it, we are seeking to hide it, The Lord knows the heart. He weighs the heart. He knows what's there. We're not hiding anything. The only person we're hiding things from is ourselves because we're scared of other people seeing it. And we believe that we're fruitful, but we will not be able to do these things if we are not first being obedient to God. So we should be humbly sowing humility and sowing obedience with a view to righteousness, seeking the Lord so that He may come and rain down that righteousness upon us. That is the, that is the difference in, in, in our individual lives. That is the difference in this church community. That is the difference that it will make in our nation and in this world. If the people of God would do what God instructs. And trust him above any other. Not to say that things will be easy. But things will become simpler in our lives. And less complicated if we put him first. Love God and love others. All the law and the prophets hinge on these two commands. But we will do neither if we're not breaking up our follow ground and positioning ourselves before a holy God. Lord, I love you and I thank you, God. I thank you um, always, Lord, for your word, for your instruction, Lord. I thank you for not leaving us to figure this out on our own. That all we need for life and godliness is given, Lord. And, and I just I pray that we don't take that lightly. We don't take your discipline lightly. I pray, Lord, that, that, that our hearts are willing, Lord, to do the work, Lord, of, of, of breaking up that hard ground that is in our hearts so the things that, that we hide below the surface can be set free, can be brought into the light, can be healed, removed, so that new seed can be planted, Lord, that you would rain down your righteousness upon us, that we would be fruitful, that our lives would be marked by those that are full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, Lord, all those fruit that comes about by your Spirit to testify to the world who we belong to, Lord. And I pray in my own heart, That people see you in me more than they see me in me. Wouldn't that be leading others to destruction if they always see me? Lord, I pray for our church, Lord, as we go from this place that you remind us, Lord, of your call. is to faithfulness and obedience to you, Lord. That we would trust you above all else with what you say to be right and good and true, Lord. to change our lives, our homes, to change our community, Lord. None of that will happen apart from you, Lord, and I pray that we find ourselves walking in that, Lord. We love you and we thank you, Lord, and it is in your name that we pray. Amen.